how you feel about Advent. When the word comes along, do you sort of go, yeah, like me? Or do you think, oh my goodness, only a month to go. Now I do love it, and I don't love it because of all the shops and because of all the blooming tele-adverts that have been going on since about last March, (laughs) and all the discussion about Christmas and and all the twee stuff, I don't love it because of that. I don't feel excited because of that. I feel excited because inside is that thought about the mind-blowing truth about the baby that's going to be born, the God-made man, the incarnate God made flesh, God with us, Emmanuel, which we celebrate at Christmas in the person of Jesus. And even more mind-blowing thought, that at some time he will come again. And that's what makes me excited about Christmas and particularly about Advent. And this Advent season at St Paul's, we are thinking about some alternative symbolism to the candles on the Advent wreath. Uh, You might have been waiting to shout out the names of the patriarchs, which is normally the first candle. You might have been swatting all year in order to remember them, because uh, most of us don't. but this year you were foiled because in the, um, the sort of other way of thinking about the Advent candles, the first one is the prophet's candle and it symbolises hope. It symbolises the hope and expectation that the prophets announced. And this is the same hope they were speaking about of, of salvation that we, that we can experience today, that same hope as we wait in this in-between time between Jesus coming to earth as that tiny baby and Jesus coming again at the end of time in all his glory. And as I said, that's what gets me excited. So today we're going to have two readings sort of interleaved. They're both poems um, and one is Psalm 13 and one is Isaiah 9. So if you can read those both at once, I'm really impressed, but you might prefer just to listen. <laughs> and Victoria and Mike are going to come up and uh, read this to us. Psalm 13 is a psalm, a poem of impatience in a time of suffering, and Isaiah is a scripture of great pom- promise about the hope we've got. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. How long will my enemy triumph over me? For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their impressors. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. 
but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. For us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And we will call him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Thank you. So let's have a look at those two passages in a little more depth. Now, Psalm 13 was probably written by David, the King David, David the warrior who slew Goliath, and he was the one who wrote many of the Psalms. Now, it starts in despair, with God apparently turning his face away from the writer. How long will all this horribleness go on, he cries over and over and over again. Now, it's a heart cry for God to deliver the psalmist from death. Look on me, he writes, and answer. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. Now, in the imagery of the Old Testament, references to eyes dimming or eyes needing light, they're a symptom of failing strength. And that strength might be failing because of grief or affliction or unfulfilled hopes. David's crying out to God to restore him to life and rekindle his hope, even though he's in desperate circumstances. And that was thought to be that he was seriously ill. And David's death would have given his enemies just what they wanted, triumph over him. So he's crying out in despair. Now, the book of Isaiah was written by a prophet, or possibly prophets, around about 700 years before Christ. Just before where we picked up the reading, in verse 1 of chapter 9, we hear about the people of Israel suffering under the darkness of the occupying forces of the Assyrians who'd invaded and taken over their country and were wiping out their culture and were generally um, oppressing them. But Isaiah, in the midst of all this darkness, prophesies a great light coming and the enemies defeated. And this came true when the Assyrian army was um, defeated and destroyed in about 700 BC, 701 thereabouts. But this prophecy of a light coming wasn't just for then, 700 years before Jesus, but it was also for the future. And we hear about this in Luke chapter 2, where a righteous man called Simeon has been waiting for the coming of the Lord's Messiah. And when Mary and Joseph bring the child Jesus to the temple, Simeon realizes that this child is the fulfillment of all he's been waiting for. And he praises God, saying this, My eyes have seen your salvation, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, And for glory to your people Israel. The light bringing light into eyes that were dimmed. 
Most of Psalm 13 expresses impatience for God to intervene in the dark times, but Isaiah 9 is full of hope for the future, where enemies will be defeated by the power of God. Now, right now, we could be forgiven for relating far more to Psalm 13 than Isaiah 9. With Paris in mourning, with Brussels just emerging from a state of emergency lockdown, the events in Mali, Somalia, Nigeria and other parts of Africa, you could be forgiven for for thinking that uh, terrorists can just walk around unimpeded and unchecked. The Middle East's in turmoil. Aircraft are being blown out of the skies. Security services in this country warning that it's only a matter of time before terror walks our streets as well. Thousands of refugees are facing the winter closing in and borders closing in their very faces. Many of us know friends or family who are in dark places, battling illness, Addiction, relationship breakdown, depression. No apparent prospect of improvement in their circumstances. Could it not seem as if evil is triumphing wherever it rears its ugly head? How long, O God, how long we cry out in impatience and desperation. Where is God in all this. Even, bless him, the Archbishop of Canterbury is wrestling with those same thoughts. I find that quite reassuring. And he put this on his Facebook page after he sort of opened up in the media about the fact he was asking where God was in all this. He said, as Christians, we're least what we could be when we fear and most what we should be when we hope. Least what we could be when we fear and most what we should be when we hope. So was David in about 1000 BC, were the people of Israel in 700 BC, are we in 2015 AD going to remain in fear and hopelessness about the state of the world? Well, surely the answer should be, in fact must be, a resounding no. Psalm 13 ended with a decision to trust and hope in God's unfailing love for his people Israel and the house of David. Isaiah 55.3 brings the threads together as God promises his people, I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. And furthermore, in the second book of Samuel, chapter 7, God promises to David, David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And indeed, the hoped-for Messiah, the Saviour, is directly descended from David. And the proof of that is in the opening chapter of Matthew's Gospel, where we read Jesus' genealogy. Isaiah chapter 9 closes with a promise of the coming of the Messiah as a child, a child who will be wonderful counsellor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And who had the singing, who was singing that in their head, as I said those names from Handel's Messiah? One or two people were in the other services, I know I do. Wonderful counsellor, someone whose programme of hope 
will give the whole world cause to marvel. A mighty God with divine power to rule and reign. An everlasting Father like the best of all fathers to protect and provide for us. And the Prince of Peace. And his rule will bring wholeness and salvation to individuals and the whole of society. The promise of the coming Messiah. And how can we know that this hope isn't misplaced? Because Isaiah promises that it is God's zeal for his people is the guarantee that he will accomplish his purposes. His love, his enthusiasm, his overwhelming care for us will bring this about. Because you see, as Victoria explained so clearly, in Bible times, hope was not a woolly it might or it might not sort of thing. It was a solid expectation that it would happen. It's not it might or might not happen. It's not if it will happen. It's when it will happen. And let's leave the how up to God. It's a done deal. So that metaphor of the signpost pointing into the mist is really helpful, I think. We, we can see the direction. We just can't see where it's pointing to. We just have to travel in the way it says. So, at this point, I thought long and hard about how to carry on with this sermon. And some of you will be pleased to hear I also prayed about it as well. And usually, at this point, I could have offered you some thoughts about the nature of Christian hope based in Scripture. And here's one of the thoughts I found from Romans 5. A hope focused on something something in the future that one expects but doesn't yet possess. I could offer you some thoughts on that, and I could have expanded on that, and then I could have gone on to think about the traditional theme of Advent, the hope that Jesus will come again in glory when every knee will bow and every tongue confess, and there'll be no more pain, no more crying, no more suffering. Great. I could have ended that sermon, had I preached it, which I'm not, believe it or not, with my so what? What are the implications for us as 21st century Christians still waiting for Jesus, for him coming? Uh, Something that they expected to happen in the first century and 2,000 years later, we're still waiting and it hasn't happened. And you know what? That's really, really commendable and it probably would have been quite a good sermon. But it relates more to our heads than our hearts. It relates more to the logical left side of our brain than the creative right side. So I'm going to do something different today. There's not going to be a so what from me. I'm going to leave it up to you. We started, as I said way back, with two poems from the Bible, Psalm 13 and Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to hear another poem now, not from the Bible this time. It's called Advent Calendar. And it was written by the previous Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams. Uh, It's going to probably be Marmite for you. You're either going to love it or absolutely hate it. And I'm quite happy to have a chat with you at coffee time. I tell how you feel. But either way, I hope, and I'm hoping with a certain expectation here, that you will reflect on it and with it and using it in a different way on the meaning of Advent. And uh, just by the door here on the table, there's a few copies to take away at the end of the service if you liked it and wanted to reread it.
Now, Advent Calendar is a poem of stark and harsh language. It's got one verse for each of the four weeks of Advent. It feels wintry, and it's meant to make us shiver. It's earthy, and it's raw, and it expresses longing and hope, and that's a hope of expectant certainty. So Ian's going to read it a verse at a time, and then I will share a few thoughts on each verse afterwards. These are partly my own thoughts, and partly um, using an Advent reflection written by the Dean of Durham Cathedral. So you know it's solid, okay? The Dean, not me. Then Ian will reread the whole thing from start to finish, just for you to revisit it. Now, if you like, do feel free to close your eyes so you can just listen, if that's the way you engage better. Or there'll be just a few images on the screen to hopefully help you reflect on the words. But can I encourage you to listen between the lines, just to allow the words to splash into your mind and send the ripples where they may. Ian, let's have the first verse. He will come like last leaf's fall. One night when the November wind has flayed the trees to the bone and earth wakes choking on the mould the soft shrouds folding. A violent image. Trees being flayed to the bare bones. You might remember the vivid colours of autumn leaves we had a few weeks ago, which were suddenly stripped away by the two storms we had. The leaves piling up on the ground, likened to a shroud. Death coming in violence, without gentleness. Where might you feel flayed to the bone? Where might the November winds be cutting into you, as it were? When Jesus comes again in the last days, it will be violent. The Gospels talk of heavens being torn apart and stars falling from the sky. All will come under his judgment. We can be sure of that. He has promised. He will come. He will come like frost. One morning when the shrinking earth opens on mist to find itself arrested in the net of alien sword-set beauty. Quieter now. The frost stealing across the landscape. The Gospels talk of Jesus coming like a thief in the night. Everywhere cold and frozen in an unrelenting, fierce, sword-set grip. Lives retreating into hibernation. But the life is still there, deep down, and waiting for the right time to burst into being. Can we wait as in hibernation, allowing the promises of God to seep deep into our hearts, like a hard frost holds the earth in its grasp, held transfixed by the arresting beauty of the truth of God's love for us and the hope we have in him. Can we wait? He has promised. He will come. He will come like dark. 
One evening, when the bursting red December sun draws up the sheet and Penny masks its eyes to yield the star-snowed fields of sky. Imagine a December day when the sky is full of dark clouds and the day draws early to a close. Just as the light begins to fade, the skies clear and the glowing dull red of the setting winter sun is revealed. As it sets, the clear skies reveal myriad stars and constellations. But the poem says, he won't come like sun, but like dark. The sun's brief glory brings in the night, not the day. And we're not taken indoors by the poet, but left outside, shivering in the dark winter cold, watching and waiting and wondering, hoping against hope that there is a kindness and a mercy in the darkness. He has promised. He will come. He will come. Will come. Will come like crying in the night, like blood like breaking as the earth writhes to toss him free. He will come like a child. Suddenly, our outdoor frozen reverie is broken. The repeated, he will come, will come, will come, sounds like a knocking on the door. And then the cry comes. Do we feel as if we are crying out like we are lost in the night? If so, then hear the final lines of this poem. It is not the cry of someone lost. It is the cry of a newborn. Breaking free of waters, the warm blood, the energy and movement of the writhing of childbirth. Here is new life. Here is hope. Here is the wonderful last line echoing the words of Isaiah who said, For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The earth tosses him free and so we are free too. All our hopes and longing find fulfilment in this birth. Out of the pain comes something new and precious and out of the blood, the mess, the sheer physicality of it comes something pure, something clean and innocent, something spiritual. This child, this child, Jesus, Messiah, Saviour, he is our sure and certain present hope. He is our sure and certain future hope and he will open up our vision to see the star-snowed fields of sky giving light that shines in the darkness, a light that is always there and the darkness can never overcome it. Even though life, even though the world is tough, he has promised he did come like child. He will come, which we anticipate with hope this Advent.
He will come like last leaf's fall. One night when the November wind has flayed the trees to the bone and earth wakes choking on the mold, the soft shrouds folding. He will come like frost. One morning when the shrinking earth opens on mist to find itself arrested in the net of alien, sword-set beauty. He will come like dark. One evening, when the bursting red December sun draws up the sheet and penny masks its eye to yield the star-snowed fields of sky. He will come, will come, will come like crying in the night, like blood, like breaking, as the earth writhes to toss him free. He will come like a child. John, would you lead us in prayer, please?